Hello and welcome to Making of a Story in the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to finish his dissertation and somehow get a job. Uh, and by now you already know that this season we are doing a series of interviews. I'm interviewing my friends and colleagues about the sort of work that they do. And today I'm very pleased uh, to present to you uh, Varsha Venkata Subramanian, um, who is a second year in the uh, Berkeley History Department studying late 20th century US policy and development. And that, Varsha, this doesn't, late 20th century, that, that does not seem like history to me. Like that's journalism. Like how late is late 20th century? Like how do you justify being in a history department when you study something that's like, you could throw a stone and hit it. <laughs> so late 20th century can mean so many different things. It doesn't just have to mean 1980s, 1990s to 2000. I sort of consider late 20th century as anything after like 1960 to 2000. And so my end date is for my specific project, the year 2000. And I know that it feels like that was only 18 years ago or 19 years ago. And it is. I, I get that. But I was alive in late I 2000. I know. I, I was making out with people in late 2000 and drinking beers and people like that. That's not history. I get it. And, I, you know, I was only seven in the year 2000. But the thing is, stuff that's happening in the 1990s and 1980s, whichever field of history you look at, there are major transformations. And the way we define history is change over time. Yeah. Right? And so if we're looking at change over time, let's say in the field of U.S. foreign policy, there are major events that are happening in the 1980s under the Reagan administration that I would justify as history. And I also work on U.S.-India relations. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of Indians and for a few Indian historians, they mainly focus on the British Empire period and stuff that's happening before that. And so history sort of ends in 1947. What happens in 1947 to well, end history? Well, so in 1947, India gains, India and Pakistan gain independence from from Great Britain. And yeah. so it's not as if history actually ended in 1947, but for so much of Indian history, the goal is the creation of that nation state. Yes. And yeah. so yeah. for a lot of historians, they're really focusing on how was that state created? Why was that state created? How does it develop with, you know, how does the British Empire develop and affect Indian policy or the Indian state and Indian people? And so when you finally get to 1947, it feels like so many stories have been told that it's hard to escape stuff that happens before 1947. Mm. And so there's not a lot of work done on the 1960s or 70s or even 80s in India. And there's right now there's a new crop of historians who are trying to look at Indian history and South Asian history uh, of this time period. But it's it's an it's basically a new field. And I, I think it's the same for when you look at the history of U.S. foreign policy, a lot of histories of U.S. foreign policy do look at development. And they have told many amazing stories about development, um, but usually it sort of ends around the mid-1980s. So wait, wait, you've mentioned this thing, development. Tell me, what's, what does what development mean? I have like this kind of vague idea that it's like, help, you know, I don't know, helping people build schools or something but yeah. like i don't it's 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 strange for me to think of that having a history yeah so development is kind of like those words like capitalism and neoliberalism that it's, it's hard to really pin down one <laughs> specific definition yeah. it's plagued many people trying to pin down one definition but generally development is creating not just institutions but infrastructure mm. and not just physical infrastructure but also like uh educational infrastructure or um you know or irrigation projects so it's not just like um 
you know, like a bank or something or, or a dam. It's also like the whole process of developing a country is bringing a country to what the developed country thinks is quote unquote modern. Okay. And right? so where do you start this, 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 this process in your like historical lens? Like where, where's the starting point? So for me, the starting point, obviously, you know, depending on the historian you talk to can go into like the like 19th century or the well, I mean, 20th century. Project, like, but for yeah, me, yeah. I began in 1944. What happens in, I, so I know 1945 is when the second world war ends. Yeah. Uh, I don't do what happened in 19, a bunch of, Battles happened in 1944? What happened in 1944 that's so, so important? Yeah. So in 1944, at the Bretton Woods Conference. Okay, I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah. So the Bretton Woods Conference, which is in the U.S., they create, uh, this conference creates two major institutions, the World Bank mm-hmm. and the International Monetary Fund. And both of them basically work to, to lend money. Right. And so the World Bank has two institutions within it. It has the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development and the International Development Association. And, okay, they, and there's those two words again, development. That seems yeah, like an important, it is. An important and, keyword. And so the goal of the World Bank, based on their own based in their own words, is basically poverty alleviation. Mm. And so they call themselves the world's largest development institution because they've, quote unquote, helped over 100 countries, developing countries transition to uh into changes that that is plaguing them right I'm, so it's not i mean just- that doesn't sound bad i all i know about the world bank and the imf is when i was a hippie and like my other hippie friends yeah complained about the world bank for reasons that at the time i didn't understand and i don't understand now so that doesn't sound too bad well the thing is initially the goal of the world bank was to they were basically lending money to help rebuild countries that were devastated by world war ii mm-hmm. right and, and that's then the, the, the so it's reconstruction and development so at first it was that reconstruction part. yeah so yeah. literally reconstructing countries that are that are hurt by world war ii that have their infrastructure destroyed that have other um, aspects destroyed and then its focus shifted from this reconstruction to the development. And so it's not just dams, which is what I focus on. It's also large irrigation projects, electrical grids, um, uh, roads and and highways, and also eventually poverty alleviation and healthcare and so many different aspects. And basically the way it does this is it it lends out money to these projects. Um, And I focus on one like my recent research paper focuses on one specific loan. Um, and this is where the contemporary history and late 20th century comes in. It is uh, a dam project in India. Yeah. It's called the Narmada Valley Dam Project. And basically it's uh, the Narmada Valley, the Narmada River uh, is really long river that uh, ha- it goes through three states in India. Oh, wow. And states in India are like countries in Europe. They're really, basically, really big. Yeah. So going through three states, this is like... Like I'm a, like as big as the Rhine or like the Mississippi or something. It's like a big river. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's it's literally thirteen hundred kilometers, and it goes through Gujarat, Madhya Pradesh, and um, Maharashtra. And these are the three states it goes through. And yeah. in the early days, right after independence, uh, our first prime minister Jawaharlal Nehru, as well as a bunch of other. Uh, policymakers in India and people in these states envisioned a series of dams along this river. To- Why? What does a dam do? Like, like I don't think of this is weird because when I look through history, sometimes I see people getting really excited about dams. Like, 
uh, uh, Woody Guthrie has sings about the Great Cooley Dam. Like, yeah. And, and but why? Like, it's just a dam. Like, what's cool about a dam? Yeah. So for this, again, this is why I would definitely classify my project as history. Because yeah. if you go back to the Tennessee Valley Authority, right? The and that's in the that's in the United States. The Depression during yeah. the Depression. During right? the Depression, during the New Deal, the Tennessee Valley Authority, its goal was rural electrification. Basically, hydropower, using oh. dams to electrify rural areas, as well as dams across the American West have been used for irrigation, right? Okay. Irrigation and water storage, they're fundamental to creating, um, and I'm using this word cautiously, like a modern state that's able to irrigate places that don't have constant rainfall. Yeah. Or in India, that have a lot of monsoons or have or have difficulty with like storing the water that you need. And especially oh. in India, it's electrification. And okay. so that's the goal for Nehru is hydropower and, and electrification. But being India and being that these states are so large and there's so many people fighting over water, which is a problem that's uh, that affects many countries across the world. Yeah, is we're like probably going to hear a lot more of it in the future. Exactly, yeah. right? People fighting over who has the water, who has the rights to the river, who has the right to build a dam. Because of all these issues, India only really resolves most of these issues by 1985. Oh, wow. So so, so the way that you're telling it, like, second prime minister, right? Yeah. Second prime minister ever. You're, like, embarking on this big project of building up the nation, of making the nation one of the things that it should be. And up there... Is dams. Yeah. That's crazy in the first place. Yeah. Like just dams is a big thing, a big policy thing. But then it takes 40 years for 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 the politics to actually churn through so that the actual stuff on the ground yeah. can get built. So where does the World Bank come into this? Yeah. So in 1985, after spending a few years looking at this project and the benefits of this project, like how much electrification it would offer, yeah. how much water it would store, how much it would cost, all this stuff, the World Bank in 1985 decides to lend $450 million to India to construct these dams. Mm -hmm. And... Um, what happens after they, they lend this money is a few social workers who are in the Narmada Valley, specifically one that I focus on is Meda Patkar. She starts talking to people and she basically realizes that the Indian government, even though it's been years, doesn't really have a plan to deal with the people that will be displaced by these dams. Oh, because yeah, because if you build a dam, it makes a lake. It makes It's a huge endeavor. It's yeah. huge. It's not just where you store uh, all this water that's, that's huge. It's also like has environmental consequences for the surrounding areas. So the people that she began interviewing, they start realizing we haven't been consulted on this. Not only were we not consulted, we're not consulted about the environmental costs. It seems as if the national government in India hasn't done a proper environmental study of this, and even the study isn't complete, nor have they really figured out how to how to relocate all of these displaced people. Because um, basically, in I would say in the past 80, 70 years, millions of people across the world have been displaced by dam construction. But so... I'm guessing that the dam just went ahead. Like you, you're just talking about a single social worker who discovered all these things. How did they get to like? I, I'm guessing that 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 the spoiler for the story is that everything went wrong and the dam got built and they were all displaced. So, one would think that would happen. And yes, the dam eventually does get built, and dams are still being built to this day. But this protest was a little bit different. It grows. It grows nationally. There are press reports across the country talking about these protests, about these. They're basically like they draw from Gandhian ideas, Ga uh, Mahatma Gandhi's ideas of how to do 
nonviolent protests. Oh, yeah, because there's like a big tradition in Indian politics of, of, of different kinds of protests. Yeah. Uh, uh, different kinds of public spaces. I, I remember from my own research, I read about uh, uh, a Gandhian public where um, Gandhi created new ways of political discourse by, by, by doing these kinds of like very interesting public displays mm -hmm. of 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 opposition. So like the big one is a salt march, right? Yeah. There was a hated tax on salt. Yeah. And so exactly. Gandhi like walked for like day how many days? A lot of days. A lot of days. It's he walked a lot of days to the yeah. sea and then collected salt and like panned it to make salt and like ate for it himself. and was like fuck you. Yeah. I can make all the salt that I need. Exactly. It was like a great sim symbolic uh, you know, it wasn't like going on, on Tucker Carlson and yelling at him, but it was this great symbolic moment of protest against a hated policy. So there's a deep tradition of that. There is, yeah. yeah. And so basically these protesters start organizing mass rallies in areas that are going to be affected by the construction. Mm. Um, and they create major problems for the state governments of these three states, as well as the national government. And then the press in India picks this up. And India, and one of the, the ways that I analyze this is India is the world's largest democracy in 1947, right? And throughout the late 20th century, it is the world's largest democracy, and it is to this day. And so what you get with a democracy is you get a free press. Yeah. And so when you look at other developing countries, and I use that word cautiously, protest movements against dams are not as large. And they mm. really are large in India because of its democratic institutions. And even okay. though there is, you know, there are many problems with democratic institutions in India and across the world— there's something about India that makes it, I wouldn't say easier, but makes it, uh, that engenders this type of protest. And the protests grow. And then international NGOs pick it up. So, so, so a key part of the story is that there is a democratic fabric there. That yeah. there are these institutions, that there's people who, who know that if they make a protest, there will be journalists who write stories about it. And, yep. and if there's journalists who write stories about it, there will be people who get pissed off about it. You know, I think I think this is probably the benefit of doing uh, contemporary history. Yeah. But I, I, I think of an immediate parallel to, to right now where there's a kind of scandal fatigue. Mm -hmm. Like it yeah. feels when we think about American politics, it feels like the wheels have come a little bit off. And part of that is because even though one part of the, uh, of those democratic institutions is working. Yeah. The journalism. Yeah. People, the journalists who are like digging up the muck. Yeah. The other part isn't working like once the scandal happens there's no yeah there's nothing 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 it seems like those 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 cries are falling on deaf ears so yeah. but here is an example of that process actually going going through yeah and i i understand that basically the way that my paper concludes is that this is a short-term victory for these protesters yeah. but what happens is international groups like the environmental defense fund sierra club the national resources defense council all of these three begin, uh, they actually create, um, the U.S. United States Congress starts testimony on the politics of the World Bank and specifically what the World Bank is funding. Like, who wait, are they wait. lending money to? So so this one protest in India mm -hmm. gets so big that it captures not only the the, the attention of, 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 of the Indian free press, but yeah. it also starts to, to, to gather the attention of a bunch of organizations throughout the world. And exactly. they get... And they, 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 they attach it to a critique of the World Bank. Exactly. Wow. And it, it's a major critique of the World Bank. And that's where my argument comes in, is that I 
look at how this is a crisis point for the World Bank and its mission. And its mission has been poverty alleviation and development, mm. right? Modernization theory. And the World Bank during the 1980s with the inauguration of President Reagan, as well as the rise of these protests in the late 80s, it's going through a crisis point. And it's going through a crisis point because Ronald Reagan wants the World Bank and other international lending associations and also foreign aid to be really focused on privatization, to yeah. be focused on making money for American businesses. Neoliberalism, to, as we call it now. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And so that's the word that I use. And I, I look at how neoliberalism affects the World Bank. So that you have the... Um, one of the major World Bank presidents, McNamara, that a lot of people know, he decides to leave in 1980, and Reagan brings in Clausen. And Clausen is super focused. He was actually in the private sector before. He's super focused on streamlining the World Bank and streamlining the projects they fund. But an interesting problem is they end up funding this dam anyway, mm. even though this dam represents a large, like, state-led project from the 1970s that you think they would support. And I think, and I argue that the reason they support it is because even though uh, dam building takes a lot of effort and it costs a lot of money and it really is this large status project and may not bring a lot of business in for U.S. markets and may not totally liberalize the Indian economy, yeah. the reason they fund it is the problems of modernization theory, the problem of rural electrification and not enough irrigation and water storage and all all, all these things, they still exist in India. Mm. And just because the solution hasn't developed, the, the dams are still necessary. And so they fund this dam. And these protests come up and the U.S. Congress is basically hearing testimony from all these people in the early 90s and they basically they basically call out the world bank for its explicit and dangerous lack of accountability these are the words from the testimony yeah. and they also say that basically the degree of bureaucratic and institutional coordination that the government in India and the World Bank should have engaged in doesn't exist. They don't engage enough coordination to plan on how to how to deal with these displaced peoples or to deal with the environmental consequences. So it, right? seems, it seems like there's kind of like three different competing mentalities here. Mm -hmm. So one mentality is this mentality that you identified earlier of this like 1944-esque like, let's lift everybody up out of poverty. Yeah. And you do that through building dams and getting electricity and getting water. Exactly. Right? That's one mentality. Then you have another mentality that's this, like, 1980s, like, Reagan free market thing of, like, we're going to make everything into a business that, like, sells Coke. Right? Exactly. And then you have this third thing which is a kind of like democratic good government mentality that is trying to keep both of those other two mentalities in check. Is that like a good yeah. like 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 analysis of how so so all of these three dogs are fighting who wins? Like what happens? You have you have protests. Yeah. You have the protest and the dam project is stalled right now while it's the stalled. protests are yeah. going on. So they dreamt it up in 1944. In 1985, they got the money, and it's now 19 in the 1990s, and it's still stalled. So what yeah. happens then? So in 1991 and two, the World Bank finally caves, and they create um, a private, basically an outside commission to look into what's happened. It's yeah. called like the Morse Commission to basically look into what's going on with this dam. Was this worth it for us to fund this? And Bradford Morse basically decides, no, this was a horrible idea. Oh, you really? Sh you should not have funded this dam. Really? And in 1993 the World Bank withdraws its loan. It basically, oh, wow. So basically, it's it signals that it's going to cancel its loan, and India basically rejects the loan, the Indian government. And Be the Indian because, because these, these, these uh, 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 initial um, 
steps to make sure that people wouldn't be displaced and there wouldn't be a ton of environmental damage had not been done. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so the Indian government, when this happens, is furious. And what they say, and sort of what the World Bank says later on, is we're going to build this dam anyway. And this is <laughs> they, there's actually a really great, uh, I found this amazing New York Times article where they quote an Indian government official and they say, this is a threat. This is an attack on our sovereignty. Mm. The, this is once again, the West telling us what to do with our land. Oh, and here's a fourth ethos yeah. that's coming in. A fourth, a fourth idea, which is saying like, look, no, we are, this is, this is, uh, it's our turn yeah. Western environmentalists saying that what we're, what we're doing is bad, but they don't really understand understand. Yeah, exactly. And so that's, so basically the reason that I love this story is all of these people are fighting for airtime in like the public space of what is development, what is good development, what is good governance, what should we be doing with all this money or how should we be solving these problems of electrification? And so it's not fair for me as a historian to just be like, yeah, dams are bad, screw dams, right? But it's also not fair for me to be like, um, development was good or this is perfect and this was the solution to India's problems. But when you look at all of this, uh, all these four people, four groups that are competing for who has the best idea for this problem, it, it creates a massive like phenomenon. And so the World Bank realizes that, oh, environmentalism or this type of protest, yeah. they held us accountable. And so the way that they shift this, and this is the crux of my argument, is that they take ideas of privatization from what the Reagan administration wants. And then they also take ideas of sustainability from the environmental movement. Mm. And they create a way for modernization theory to last even after the end of the Cold War. And this idea that you can continue to develop even after you are... um, even after the Cold War has ended and you're no longer fighting the Soviet Union to try to bring capitalism to the world, you can continue to develop because... We are going to be developing sustainably, okay. Right? And okay. that's the, so and that's new, so 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 in this 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 maelstrom, yeah, you get a kind of a hybrid sort of mentality being born. Yes, um, a a where you get the modernization theory, the the ethos of stewardship or environmentalism, and yeah. the ethos of neoliberalism all going in together, and that's sustainability. Yeah. And that's sustainable development, basically. And the real reason this is so fascinating to me is because in the year 1998, 1997, there's this project called the World Commission on Dams. Mm -hmm. And the World Bank sort of sponsors it, as well as other institutions. And they basically conclude that, yeah, these problems that dams solve exist. And there are dams that do solve problems without without the costs that are associated with them, but big dams. Big dams are a problem because so big dams are not efficient. So they do so. So just to tease this out, yeah, they're 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 doing this kind of accounting where they will look at the expected returns of this big project. They'll, yes, they'll, they'll look at how much it costs and and they'll try to quantify the benefit that people get out of it. Yeah, and quantify the environmental damage. Yeah, and then they'll say, look. This is bad yeah. because the accounting says that it doesn't yeah. pay off, and that's the difference. Like the 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 if you 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 imagine like a stand-in mm-hmm. like like hippy dippy environmentalist like I was when I was sixteen. Yeah, their opposition to the dam would be any dam is bad because it exactly. destroys the natural world. Yeah, if you think of an old 
like uh, 1960s like uh, development hawk. Yeah. They would say any dam is good because you just got to build factories and dams and that's what the modern world is. Exactly. And if you think about a neoliberalist person, they, they would just be looking for a profit. But yeah. here in sustainable development, you get all three of those things interacting together. Yeah. And okay. that's like, that's what I point as like the major shift in how development changes in the 1980s. And yeah. I, I point to it in the 1980s and not like the 1970s because of the effects of this protest and Reagan era ideology. So, so and I'm, that's I'm, I'm, necessary. I'm sitting at the edge of my seat here. Did the dam get built? Yeah. So finally in 2017... Prime Minister Modi has inaugurated one of the major dams on the Narmada River. And there's still protests to this day. Narmada Bachao Andalan, I can't believe I didn't mention the, the name of the protest movement. NBA, the uh, the protest movement led by Meda Patkar and others, they're still protesting to this day. They have a Twitter account. They're still talking they about this. They have a this. Twitter account. Yeah. They still continue to hold massive rallies. There are actors, like a famous Bollywood actor, um, Amir Khan is I like, know Amir Khan. Yeah, he's he's protesting with these people. Arundhati Roy, a famous fiction writer, she is one of the major voices against the dam construction and development in the 90s and 2000s and to this day, right? So this is still being written about and it's still and the reason I think it's still history is the way not only because it looks at change over time, like that's what I'm trying to do, but also because the way it informs our politics today. And that's mm. that's sort of a lot of what history does is how do we get to how did we get to here? Yeah. How did we get to today well, where you have a big populist government in India who still wants to build dams and you have um uh, uh you have a World Bank today, even under this administration, that still wants to lend out money, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you have a World Bank under Obama and under Bush and under Clinton that's still lending out money for these type of projects. What is the shift at the end of the Cold War, right? So, so if this if this is in some ways a genealogy of sustainable development, is part of your argument that the the I want to know is 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 the talk around this damn project. Is it an example of the change or is it itself a catalyst of the change? It's both. It's That's both. why I love being okay. a historian, because no matter what question you ask me, I will say, well, it's complicated. But basically, it's if complicated. If you were a sociologist and I asked that question, you would you would show me the graphs where you've done the regressions and talked about uh, yeah. causality. But this is why I love being a historian. I don't have to do that regression. I mean, I could and I, I probably will for the final project, but... Um, when I'm looking at this, I see it as both. I see this protest movement and what uh, what Reagan era and 1980s economic policy looks like and Indian liberalization as all like catalysts for this new movement around development, but also as an example mm. of it, right? And I think the the reason that I ended up looking at the the, the final research paper basically looked more like a history of the World Bank in this period, mm-hmm. instead of a history of the protest movement or a history of the Reagan administration or a history of U.S.-India policy, it was, how is the World Bank a vector in all of this? Why mm-hmm. is it at the center, center of the story? And it's at the center of the story, not just because the people who decide, who are in the World Bank um, leadership decide to fund this project, but also because when the funding is pulled, these same people who worked on India policy at the World Bank still have jobs there. They're still working there. And even though they're under this new guise of sustainable development, even though the World Commission on Dams has basically said big dams are so costly to the environment and to displaced peoples that we have to find better solutions or at least find a better way to build them, the same people are still working on this. And that's why you still have protests. You still have that. So what I find frustrating at times is that 
it's hard for me to point to a single moment where everything changed. Yeah. But if I had to, I would I would point to 1989. And not because... What, the what co- happens in 1989? I mean, I know a lot happens in 1989, but what happens in your story? Like, why, yeah. why is that a big change? Yeah, so... A, a big turning point. So for a lot of U.S. foreign policy historians, that's the end of the Cold War. Yeah. But for me, that's the year the World Bank is like really looking into deciding whether or not they have to fund this dam or not. Mm. Or... And that's the year that uh, these protests really internationalize. That's the year that the H.W. Bush administration is really thinking about how do we, are we going to continue with the same process of foreign lending and foreign aid that the Reagan administration had? That's the that's the year that um, uh, that that's the year that uh, the U.S. Congress decides to start thinking about holding hearings on this, right, uh, on the World Bank. Yeah. And so that year is fundamental to me, not just because that's the year the U.S. emerges as, as the unipolar power in the world, the one superpower. And history ends. And, and history ends. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. History doesn't end in 1989, folks. Um, ends in 1914. It ends in 1914. <laughs> um, the reason it's it's because it marks a new moment for how we understand development and the World Bank and foreign lending. Okay. And a way to look at that is to look at U.S.-India and what's happening so, in India. So, so let's zoom out a bit. Like when, mm-hmm. when, you, when we were talking about this before, you, 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 you kind of had a dam mania about you. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about the significance of dams. Like why are dams so cool? Again, like, like for me, this seems a little... It's it's a little boring, and so like like yeah. just thinking about uh, my mental image of a dam is just a giant concrete wall and like some water. Yeah. And so why dams? Like, what do dams mean? What's like the big picture of dams for you? So for me, it goes back to this seminar I took in undergrad. It was on development. Yeah. And uh, one week we read uh, David Lilienthal, who was one of the heads of the Tennessee Valley Authority. He wrote this book called Democracy on the March. Yeah. And basically he was talking about how irrigation projects, specifically dams, bring democracy. Yeah. You know? And I'm reading Again, this as a Woody prime... Guthrie sang a song about uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority and sang it had, 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 I think, a song sweet about the Grand Ole Coulee Dam. Yeah. Yeah. And so, basically, I'm reading this as, uh, as a primary source, being like, why the hell does this guy think that if he goes to the Indus Valley in India, yeah. he can solve problems between India and Pakistan over Kashmir by building dams? He actually thinks that? He actually thought that. Okay. Right? It was fa- It's a the fascinating... power of dams. It's a fascinating article. He wrote this uh, in uh, another magazine. I'm blanking on the name of, but it's called Another Korea in the Making. And mm-hmm. Lilienthal writes that, you know, Punjab is the powder keg of of our con- contemporary society. It is. It can become another Korea, like mm-hmm. another North-South Korea fight if we don't solve this problem. And a way to solve this problem is to irrigate it. And the problem to, with to Kashmir, be- just, to, just to, to, to clarify, that's because Kashmir is like a really agriculturally... A uh, 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 productive area that is dis- has disputed ownership. India yes. says Kashmir is Indian. Uh, Pakistan, Pakistan says, says it's Pakistan. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Kashmir is a Muslim majority region, and uh, basically, initially, there are you know hopes that it'll become Pakistan uh, when it comes to partition, but it becomes Indian because territory. Because India, what what was a big blob country called India, that's like. A fucking continent yeah split up on religious lines in 56 no in in 1947 yeah partition partition happens in 47 partition happens right at the moment of independence okay and so because partition happens the indus valley is like 
the Indus Waters Treaty, which was signed in 1960, I'm going into a totally separate yeah. history, but I love it, is also this, it's one of the major, one of the best developments in water history of international history ever, because it was able to actually resolve a lot of issues between India and Pakistan over who owns the water, okay, so who goes let's, to the real Let's zoom back and, and, and think about this guy. So this guy, Lilienthal, yeah. he thinks that dams can solve these problems between India and Pakistan that could become another uh, a Korean War. Yeah. And you were like, wow, like this guy thinks dams could solve everything. Yeah. And so I, I read a lot of his work. I read so much other work on dam building across the world. So I read uh, Damming Afghanistan. I read a book on um, concrete. It's a great book called Concrete Revolution by Christopher Sneddon. And he basically looks at the, the role of the Bureau of Reclamation and building dams across the world. Mm. And I realized that like a lot of these historians, they're doing amazing work about how dams basically become an arm of foreign policy, yeah. right? And they become an arm of foreign policy because of the type of war that the Cold War is. And I'm like, that's all well and good. That's fascinating wait, to wait, me. Wait, wait, wait. How, how, that doesn't make sense. So, 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 so explain that a little bit more. Like, there, what kind of... When I think of a war, I think of the like video games that I play where yeah. I, I make little troops yeah. and they go assault a city and then they take a city. Yeah. But you're saying that like building dams is a weapon in this war? Like how did that explain so the, that a bit more? Like why is the Cold War like that special war that building a dam is better than like yeah. assaulting a city with, 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 with troops? Yeah, so obviously the Cold War had a lot of proxy wars and actual battles, yeah. right? And I, I'm not discounting that. But ultimately the Cold War is a war of ideology. Is whether or not the USSR's ideology of communism yeah. wins over the United States' ideology of capitalism, oh. right? And that it's it's a war of ideology, and because it's a war of ideology, dams become a way to represent that ideology uh, for the Soviets because they're actually building dams in Tajikistan. There's yeah. a great book on this that just came out about uh, dam construction by the Soviets and the United States. They're building dams all across the world. Basically, they're helping all these countries build dams. It becomes a symbol of, I wouldn't say capitalism, but a way for people to get involved, for people to not just get jobs, but also to have rural electrification, to have proper irrigation, to have a more involved community in the economy. And so that's why dams are important, is that they solve issues of water disputes between people, they solve problems of irrigation, they solve problems of electrification, but eventually, as the 1970s, 1980s roll on, People start looking at the costs of dams. And this so, is not just happening in the U.S., but also across the world. So I just want to bring this back to our first uh, uh, little discussion about this keyword development. Yeah. Because the way that you're picturing it, there's 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 two ideologies. Yeah. That that are fighting fundamentally about how what what is a good way to be a person in the world. Yeah. But... What's really curious is that they are using the exact same tool to bring those yeah. things about. And it seems that there's like a lurking mentality or or something lurking beneath, and that's the idea of development. Yeah. That both of these ideologies, capitalism, communism, or, or whatever you want to call it, think that the way to get to the promised land is through these big building projects that provide yep. people with food and electricity and water. That, that that the dam is both can is can be both a tool of of of, of capitalism and communism because it's like the symbol of development and both use that it's like a word in both of their grammars. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's what's so fascinating for me about it. And 
that's what I hope my eventual book project will end up looking at is yeah. how the dam becomes not just not just looking at the physical contours of this one dam project and other projects, but also looking at the rhetorical contours of this. And there are historians who have worked on this, and there are historians who have looked at this just in the United States case. People have looked at it when it comes to just India. But I'm hoping to look at how does the idea of a dam transform, or or does it change between the 1970s to the 1990s? And across these different and across these different ideological, ideological worlds. worlds, right? And one and the reason I chose this one research paper topic is because this was the first time that I saw in the skull or in in the archives when I was looking at various archives, World Bank archives, U.S. State Department archives, the Reagan Library's archives that it seemed as if modernization theory or the theory of development was being threatened. Mm. And in the long term, yeah, it, it, for some people it wasn't threatened because the World Bank comes out on top. You know, it still exists today, yeah. right? Where uh, we just chose its new president uh, a couple weeks ago, right? Knowing knowing this administration, was it like Ronald McDonald or Grimace? Did they choose Grimace? They basically chose a guy called Grimace, yeah. They basically I mean, chose like, uh, Yeah, so what's interesting is the, the current president doesn't really support uh, the one that uh, President Trump has appointed. He doesn't really like a lot of international development projects, and he really sees China as a threat. So it's a real, it's a weird mixed bag of like his opinions on international development. But so this sort of thing is still going on. This it's still going on. This, this the and so dams is a symbol. Like, what do they sim? Like, do they symbolize for you this this? Are they kind of like a, a stand-in for the promise of development and the problems of development, or what's what's the? Yeah, exactly that. So, like for me, when I first read um, uh, our first prime minister, uh, the first prime minister of India, Jawaharlal Nehru, who gives a speech inaugurating one of these dam projects, and he talks about dams as the modern temples of India. Mm. And every single dam historian, or even environmental historian you talk to, will reference that speech at some point in their books. If you read their, if you read their work, they reference that speech. And so it's really, um, it's really evident that dams are important to everyone, basically. And one thing that they, um, one thing that they symbolize for me is not just the promise of development, but specifically this idea that everyone can benefit from development. Mm. And that's what a dam sort of represents: is that everyone can benefit from electri- electricity and irrigation and being able to store water in this way. But, but then you also have the, the, the failure of that promise. The failure yeah. of that promise. Yeah. And so... Which is kind of the promise of modernity. Like when exactly. you think about like, like, yeah. like, like the development of modernity from the perspective of the Anthropocene, you have the promise of uh, material prosperity and then a hidden cost. That exactly. That we're only slowly becoming... More yeah. and more aware of. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up uh, because people are stealing the office that we were recording. Yeah. But thank you very much for coming on Varsha. Varsha, where can people find you on the internet if they want to find you on the internet? They can find me on Twitter at, uh, at underscore Varsha underscore Venkat. So V-E-N-K-A-T. So, yeah. Find yeah. me on Twitter there. Talk to me there. Tell me if about dance. If you tweet her, she will tell you, uh, give you a gigantic reading list. Uh, as always, check out uh, the website historian.live for reading lists and more information. Thank you very much to Duncan Barton for the image that we use and Jonathan Lear for the music. And Varsha, you have a closing thought. I do not have a closing oh, you, thought. You, you, Varsha was raising her finger up as if she had a closing thought. I don't have a closing thought. No, I just I just want to say I, I love those podcasts. And uh, yeah, it's Tell great. your friends. Tell, yeah. uh, uh, you, should, you, dear listeners, should follow Varsha and tell people that you like the podcast. Uh, this podcast is now mother-in-law 
approved. My mother-in-law is a regular listener and gives me reviews of my interview subjects. Also, this season is an interview podcast, so if you know anybody you think that I should be interviewing and I am not, please drop me a line. Thank you very much. We'll be back next Tuesday. Thank you.